This is Something to Carp About, the podcast that brings Carpinteria California to you. I'm your host, Dennis Mitchell, and together we'll explore the town's attractions and issues. This time, my guests include a fun group of locals who are trying to establish more leash-free areas for dogs and their owners. We'll chat with one of the leading cannabis experts in the region, Alex Robles, and my first guest is part of the tireless effort to help local families in need. He is Ismael Olam of the Carpinteria Children's Project. Ismael, you are the Director of Community Partnerships, which is kind of a self-explanatory title, I guess. Uh, but why don't we start by having you tell us what the project is all about, kind of an overview. Yeah, the Carpinteria Children's Project is an, basically a hub in Carpinteria. This is really an opportunity to, to make sure that our students in Carpinteria are kindergarten ready when it's time to get into kindergarten. So we offer an early childhood education. So we have childcare for uh, youth from two to five years old. We might be expanding that. And then we have a full service uh, family resource center. And so what that means is we have, um, for lack of a better term, case managers that work with families. They'll do anything from Medi-Cal, CalFresh enrollments, re-enrollments, basic needs, um, food, our food pantry, uh, we'll do parent, um, home visits, parenting classes, couples classes, literacy classes. So we, we do a lot of, of things for the community just to really just support the whole family because to become, to have a successful child, to, to have them be kindergarten ready, you have to make sure everything around them is working. Right, right. The emphasis sounds like it's on education, but raising a child involves a lot more than that. And you're covering a lot of bases that aren't directly related to schooling at all, really. Mm -hmm. Just uh, kind of augment the whole family situation, like mm -hmm. you said. At what age should parents think about getting their kids ready for school? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't think there's an age you shouldn't be thinking about that. You know, I, I recently had a, my sister just had a, had a child a year ago. And you know, we're already, th you know, she and I are already having discussions like, well, you know, what do you do? Like, what kind of games do you play? They're teaching him like uh, baby sign language. You know, they're getting him to, to read or not read necessarily, but they're reading to him. I mean, I think from day one is, is how you just get them set up. Okay. Describe that for us a little bit uh, when it comes to preparing, say, for kindergarten, if that's going to be the gateway. Uh, specifically, what does your agency do? You, you mentioned just a little bit of it there mm -hmm. as far as uh, reading to them at, mm -hmm. uh, at the earliest stage possible. What yeah. else is involved? I mean, it's um, socialization. It's about um, uh, appreciating arts, appreciating just kind of investigation, uh, research. So we'll do things um, where students get kind of figure out like, oh, why does this work? How does this work? You know, like like very basic kind of little sciencey things. But again, the socialization thing I, I think is is a big piece because we want these students to be when they enter kindergarten that they can actually you know help self soothe. They can um, moderate their own emotions and be able to explain that to somebody to be able to communicate and say. I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling anxious, and you know, hopefully have that child um, communicate that to, a, to an adult, to a parent, uh, to another uh, student, and so we don't have disruptive behavior, we don't have kids who are feeling left out or neglected because of how they're feeling. Okay, uh, so getting them to ask a lot of questions <clears throat> is a good thing, yeah. getting them to be inquisitive and wonder about things. Mm -hmm. But on the, uh, the second part of what you were talking about there, that can get pretty complicated, can't it? Because if the home situation doesn't jibe with what your goals are, mm -hmm. uh, you really have your work cut out for you in that regard. Absolutely. And, and we're very lucky. We have uh, some amazing teachers that work with us, with our two to five-year-olds in the classroom. And we, like I said, we try to augment that. Part of my work is to bring in um, different presentations, different trainings for, for families, for parents, um, our community and family liaisons, who are also our case managers, They'll do parenting classes. They'll do literacy classes. So we have something, um, we have a literacy class where you basically teach you how to read to your kid. Mm -hmm. You know, and, it, and it's very much following the LeVar Burton reading rainbow where you read the title, you read the, the author, the artist, etc. And, you know, we're just kind of giving, you know, tips and hints and little training here and there what we can do. And so we also do health fairs. We do different events to be able to just kind of, continue that education piece without being overbearing. I imagine that some of this, at least part of this, is in conjunction with the school district. Do they provide the personnel for what you need there? So originally, CARP Children's Project was part of the school district. Um, a few years ago, back in 2017, we became our own nonprofit, but we still enjoy a really close relationship with the school district. So 
our staffing is through us, but we do partner with them um, significantly, especially with you know our our special needs children, with our kindergarten teachers, our preschool teachers. You know, just trying to get them ready. We we do communicate when it comes to um, their evaluations. One's called a KSEP, so it's basically making sure that kids are kindergarten ready and how you evaluate that and what you need to work on. And so we work closely with them on that. And so we're able to collect data and also uh, partner up on different initiatives. Okay. So you do have some of your own personnel that do some of these things as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. How are your efforts funded? Our efforts are funded through many, many different ways. Our wonderful donors here in Carpinteria and Southern and throughout Santa Barbara County, we have foundation grants, we have uh, state grants. So we actually run a um, the California State Preschool uh, in partnership with the school district. So we get some funding through that. And yeah, I think that's, and we also get corporate uh, donations as well. All right. Uh, let's talk about your family resource center briefly. Uh, Carpinteria is among the most expensive places in the country to live. And so I imagine that aspect of the project uh, uh, in, includes assistance. What form does that take? Different forms of assistance. Even our early childhood education piece, you know, we have scholarships for students and for parents. So they're able to, so we can help with those families that qualify. Um, as far as assistance in the Family Resource Center, it, it really depends. We do a lot of basic needs. So one of the things that we do normally is a uh, once a month, we'll do a food distribution. And during the pandemic, we were the ones really leading that charge with the food bank. We were seeing something like 400 families wow. a month. Now it's gone down to about 100 families a month. But we provide that. We'll provide, um, you know, depending on what we have, we'll d- provide diapers, sometimes formula. The formula is really a commodity right now. Yeah. Uh, we'll help them fill out applications for, for rental assistance. We'll connect them with other um, services either that we have or with a lot of our partners. So we're very lucky that... Here in Santa Barbara County and in Carpinteria, you know, we have so many amazing folks that want to help us out and offer so many uh, great uh, resources. Okay, we'll touch on that again here in mm-hmm. just a little bit. Uh, so many things that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to list it, what would the project's top challenges be? Top challenges? Well, these are tough and scary times. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, and I know you're handling a number <clears throat> of problems facing families mm-hmm. that maybe some people aren't even aware of. Yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the scariest ones is, is probably, you know, families facing homelessness. You know, whether that's they're experiencing it or if it's, you know, they just got an eviction notice or, you know, something happened financially and they're not able to make it. So tr- being able to try to find resources uh, through the community. And through different organizations, foundations, things like that, either local or nationwide. I'm not surprised <laughs> to hear housing come out uh, as the top challenge. It, I mean, it's just uh, mm-hmm. really sad uh, mm-hmm. in this whole region, people living on top of each other and how hard it is to find a place. And if you're not making decent money, uh, then that problem's really compounded uh, mm-hmm. and trickles down to the children yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, sadly, this becomes the kind of thing where it's out of sight, out of mind. So it must be pretty gratifying to be uh, providing such critical services to people who can't always make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what can our fellow Carpenterians do to help out? I mean, come check out the Carpenter Children's Project. We're located at um, on 8th Street, back at um, the old main school. We're looking, we're looking to reestablish our volunteer program. So uh, we're hoping to have folks come in, read to our students, help out with our food distribution, help out with, you know, any other tasks around, around um, the organization, um, but also come to our events. Like I said, we have a health fair coming up, up in October. We typically have about 200 people show up to that. You know, we'd love to have more just to show you what, what's out there. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily just what's with uh, what we call CCP, our organization, but also what other organizations are out there to support you. Because many times what happens in RFRC is we'll have people coming in for one need. And then as we kind of have that discussion with them through our conversation, you know, we'll identify two, three, four more needs. Uh-huh. And so that's our ch- opportunity to, to educate them. But we also want to do as much, you know, uh, preventative as much, you know, and, and really do educational pieces. So if you know someone, you attend our health fair and you, you see an organization that um, really piques your interest. And then later down the line, somebody you know is in need of those services, 
you right there now become a referral point. You had said your next big event is the health fair in October. Yes. Uh, but you were just telling me off mic about something uh, involving science that you're doing this summer for the kids. And that sounds pretty cool. Tell us about that. Absolutely. It was a, it's a collaboration between uh, CCP in the school district and UCSB's Mesa program. And so one of the needs that was identified by one of our unified uh, counselors was having enrichment programs. And so we reached out to UCSB, their MESA program, um, you know, was willing to partner with us. And so what we've been doing the month of July is every Tuesday and Thursday at different locations, we'll do different science demonstrations. So um, they've done, uh, they've created their own lava lamps, they've created magnetic wow. slime, <laughs> um, you know, hoop planes. Um, so we, it's only going for the month of July. So we only have a couple more um times that we'll be doing it so next tuesday and thursday tuesdays we'll do at monte vista park and thursdays we'll do um at um conchaloma right in front of the apartments and that's usually from 12 to 2 and then we also provide lunch that's provided through the food bank as well i imagine that's a particular age group it's it's for younger you know we we're kind of thinking of as kind of a bridge you know for our elementary school kids specifically you know so they can get interested in science going on hopefully and then they can connect to the mesa coordinators at the middle school and the high school. Outside of being an agency mm -hmm. under yourself, is there a central facility? Is the 8th Street location a place where children, you, you had said you need volunteers to read to them. Would it be there? Yeah. Are there classrooms there? Yeah, such? everything. So um, we previously had uh, two child, uh, child care sites at Canalina Lisa School, but everything this fall is going to be just at the 8th Street uh, site. So our FRC is located there. All of our classrooms will be located there. So if anybody wants to come, volunteer, donate, you know, even just, again, just check out what we're doing. We can all, they can all come here to our site. I'm guessing there's a particular need for bilingual uh, services and people who can speak both languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're very lucky that, that the majority of our staff uh, are bilingual. And so we're able to communicate with families. Uh, many times it's either monolingual um uh, Spanish speakers or just people who are bilingual but are maybe more comfortable in a, in a language other than English. Okay. Uh, yeah. Your Facebook page is great. What other ways can people uh, get in touch with you? Um, our Facebook page, our Instagram page, um, they can also email us um, through our website. We have a volunteer sheet, um, but you can also just uh, ask us for information at info at carpchildren.org. And that's a good place to get some more information, ask questions, find out more about the organization. Carpchildren.org would be the website then. Yes. All right. Uh, it's been very uh, informative and helpful and uh, huge props to you uh, for what you're doing. Very terribly needed services in our area. And like I said, we're, we face so many challenges in Carpenter that are unique to other communities. And uh, it's good to know that your agency is there really helping out. Good on you, sir. Thank you. My dog's faster than your dog. My dog's bigger than yours. My dog's better because he gets kennel ration. My dog's better than yours. Kennel ration. The lean red meat he wants, the other good things he needs. Juicy, tender, and moist. My dog's prettier, smarter, taller. My dog's better than yours. Kennel ration. Carpinteria is one of the most dog-friendly towns you'll ever find, and pet owners are as passionate as they come about taking care of their furry family members. Any dog loves a treat, and one of the best they can get is to run free. Sea Dog is a group that has helped establish Carpinteria's only leash-free dog park, so let's chat with Van Fleischer and Lorraine McIntyre from Sea Dog. Lorraine and Van, it would seem to be an easy answer as to why people would want to have an area for their dogs to be off the leash, but why don't you guys explain it from a dog owner's view? Why is this uh, something people would want to do with their I've had dogs my whole life, but it, it was a matter of always keeping them in the house or on a leash. I think dogs, if you've ever watched dogs run and play, it, it's, it's, it's actually pretty obvious. They're in their element then. Being on a leash, they're, they're in our control. And while they, many of them do that really well, what they really want to do is to run and play. And they're, they're things of beauty when they do that. Mm -hmm. And the beach highlights that. Every dog I've ever had, I took to the beach and it was like they were from there all of a sudden. Uh, they, could, they couldn't wait to get out there and dig around and not be on a leash. So I kind of get that. Uh, Lorraine, you have a couple of dachshunds. 
Yeah, and getting back to that question, it's interesting because when I moved here, I, I never had a dog before I moved here, and it came with the condo that I bought. And I used to watch The Dog Whisperer every Saturday morning. I tape all the shows, and The Dog Whisperer said that when a dog's on leash, it has a job to do. And so it has a hard time letting go and playing and knowing the signal that it can play is when it's off leash. When it's on leash, it's protecting you, it's walking with you, it's doing its job. It's part of training. That's right. And yeah. so now I have two uh, lovely little miniature Dotsons, Brownie and Star. Uh, one came with a condo and one I adopted about a year and a half ago from Texas. Okay. Santa Barbara County, well known for its dog friendliness, and I know there are already a few leashless areas. Hendry's Beach comes to mind. Why Carpinteria? What motivated you to start this effort here? First of all, we, many of us live here, and Carpinteria uh, uniquely is one of the few cities uh, in California or anywhere else that does not have an off-leash area. And we had no place to go, uh, and rather than drive into Santa Barbara or down to Ventura, um, I mean, essentially, we were outlaws. So we would just go to the park and let the dogs play. And the number of times the code compliance people came up and said, yeah, you can't do that. And um, we said, okay, and we put our dogs on leash until he left, and then we <laughs> take the dogs off leash again. And finally, one day, he said, no, you really can't do that. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to cite you. So what do we do? He said, go to the council, bring some people. So we did. And 30 of us showed up, and the council knew that they they had an interesting situation in hand. Okay, well, well, take us through the process then. Uh, th that would be obviously be the next uh, uh, question. And I know from knowing Lorraine that the, the leashless area here is at El Carroll Park, and it's 4.30 to dark each day. So let's do the math. You, you appeared before the council, and you wound up there? Yeah, that's a fast track of what happened. Okay. <laughs> it actually took a lot longer than that to uh, continually going back and talking about it. There's very little pushback. But uh, we appreciate it. The, the, the city is liable for things that happen on, the, on their watch. So there's a due diligence process. They went through all kinds of hoops to, to see if they could protect themselves and what they, what they could do about it. Um, the initial thought was to find a dog park area, but that was at least two years down the road. So as an interim, and I can uh, talk about that later. Thanks, in a way, it was thanks to COVID that we actually got the dog park started, the off-leash area started. The long-term goal is to have a park exclusively for this. Yes. Oh, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. I saw a notice uh, that this dog group was going to meet at the city council and go to the city council. But before that, Van organized a meeting at the women's club. And there were probably about 50 people in the women's club. He got up and spoke about his initiative and what he wanted to do. And he asked people to raise hands. And uh, when it came to treasurer, of course, nobody else was raising their hands. So I did because <laughs> I'm a CPA. So that was in late 2016, I believe. And then by 2017, we had all the legal documents formed, which I worked with a local legal uh, council who donated their time and we got everything formed to start the nonprofit and then we started advertising but to Van's point COVID helped us is because we were petitioning for a fenced-in dog park so I when see. you said exclusive park ideally what dog owners want is a fence around it so that the dogs can uh, not run out into the street or go after you know bike bikes or anything else moving and so that was what we were working towards. And El Caro just kind of fell in our lap, as Van said, because of COVID. You've addressed the issue of liability, and, and I think we'll get back into that here in just a little bit. On paper, it's such a great idea, but in practice, it has to lead to problems from time to time as new dogs show up. Tell us about that and how you deal with it. Yeah, so uh, Van is our chief ambassador. So what we did was we formed uh, a bunch of rules and guidelines that the ambassadors will then educate all the people coming to the El Caro Off-Leash Park. We have sign posted with all the rule, rules, etiquette, and guidelines. And then we have a lot of educational materials. And so Van, as the chief ambassador, will recruit other volunteers to be ambassadors to spread the word to keep the dog's um, owners aware of what they might do in case their dog 
becomes aggressive or starts to run out of the bounds where we could get ticketed. Yeah. And I know Van has a lot more to add um, with regards to the ambassador program. Well, what was interesting about it is we we did start, I mean, essentially a, a humanless expanse of park begged the question, why couldn't we have some area to run our dogs in? And as we sat there looking at nobody else in the park except those of us who were there breaking the law mm-hmm. with our dogs, I thought, this is silly. Um, code compliance guy happened to show up and he was smart enough to stay there for a very long time, so we, we did have to disperse. But we went to a council again and said, this is crazy. It's going to take a long time for a park. There's nobody there at the park. Give us the space. So they did that, and they allowed us to, to have El Caro. And so we started up during COVID, and so we, we had two issues at the park. Number one was compliance for the people, making sure that we wore masks. Uh-huh. At that time, it wasn't just six feet apart. It was had to wear a mask. Um, and then the other were the dogs. And and as Lorraine pointed out, and you mentioned, um, one of the big issues for new dogs in particular to go to a, an area with other dogs is running away. So one of the first things we always teach people, recall. Recall is the most important command you can give your dog. They have to obey recall. And and then people, you have to wear your masks. And we had some issues. Um, there were people saying, you have no authority to tell me to wear a mask. That's, and I remember saying, you're right. But I have the phone number of somebody with authority that's going to come tell right. you to wear a mask yeah. if you want to do that. Yeah. Um, but the, the beauty of it, and I, I think that in addition to the dogs and watching the dogs run around free and like they seemed to know they weren't breaking the law too they seemed happier i don't know why yeah yeah um but because we're there during covid and because there were so few other opportunities for humans to to be involved with other humans we formed another community at the park and every once in a while it didn't happen often but one of us got covid and immediately the rest of the group swung into action. We'll bring food on Monday. Who's bringing it on Tuesday? Very good. Wednesday. If somebody didn't show up for a couple of days, they got a phone call. Are you okay? What's going on? And as a result, as the person sort of in charge, loosely, uh, when people would leave at the end of the day, they'd say, thank you, Van. And I'm for what? Um, and it was just giving everyone this opportunity to be outside, to be interacting with humans, although at a distance and with a mask, and enjoying our dogs. Yeah. So it was like a perfect world for us. Yeah, wow. Uh, what you had said about wanting a fence around the park brings to mind and reminds us that dogs are territorial, and so are their owners. Um, so, you know, your vision appears sound at least. Are there red flags with regard to breeds, certain breeds that show up? Because certain, certain breeds are notorious for being more aggressive than others. And maybe you see a problem coming before it starts. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the dog owners learn very early on what triggers their dog and which other types of dogs are triggers. And each dog may have a different trigger. I know for mine, it's any dog with a pushed-in face. And when I watch the dog whisperer explain this, it's because of the wide-set eyes and they look on alert they look aggressive and then it's a little bit intimidating so for my dogs it it tends to be uh, the pit bulls the boxers the rottweilers but they also react very strongly to huskies so if i take my dogs out there and i see any of those breeds i'm i usually keep them on a leash for a while or i walk to another side of the park where i know that they won't be so reactive but i will point out and i know van has some things to add to this that Dogs on leash against dogs off leash or dogs on leash with dogs on leash, they react differently than when they're both off leash. Okay. I was going to say it probably behooves anybody showing up at the park to have a leash just in case. Well, in fact, it's because it is still technically illegal to be outside of that park without a leash. They, yeah. We're reminding everyone, even in the parking lot, when you when you let you in, especially in the parking lot, they... Dogs like to jump out of the car and yeah. run, and there's cars. Um, so, yeah, we're careful about that. I think that, and you know, I think everybody has probably heard this, dogs are often 
mirror the personality, the fears and anxieties of their owners. And so when someone is gets uptight because they see a big German shepherd or a pit bull or some other dog, I think that just transmits right down through that leash to the dog. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, there are some that just by their nature, they're either more competitive, they're more a little bit more aggressive in some situations. And that particular behavior triggers some other issues. Um, not too long after we got started, I bought a, a bear horn, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when the dogs would be playing, and you could, you could see it happening, they would play and got a little bit more aggressive and a little more aggressive, starting a good time. But we knew we would reach a point right. that something would happen. And it's, it's actually, you have to make everyone laugh because here's this melee of, of, of dogs just just running all over, you know, just really getting more aggressive and beep. <laughs> and it was like a movie just freezing in time. And then for a second or two, and then they all go about their business like none of that ever happened. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so and I don't even bring the horn out any anymore because it's, uh, it, it's almost not worth the effort to get it out. Okay, you said the city had agreed to accept uh, some liability for this before allowing it to be set up. Are there limits to that? Is that covered by the signs you've put up in, in terms of any lines anybody could go over? Like I say, if somebody gets hurt, then you're looking at legal action one way or the other. I, I mean, to be honest, I you know I know that they uh, they have done their their due diligence. I believe that there are laws in place that certainly in California that you are a dog owner is responsible for their dog. Now maybe the city would be brought into an action as well if that um, park were there. But the rules being posted in many places to get onto that field, you know, you have to walk past the rules. I think they've covered themselves to say these are the rules, and you have to abide by them. Maybe your dog was not old enough. Uh, because there's a four-month uh, younger limit, uh, the, all kinds of things. And, and the simple rule that you have to be in control of your dog at all times. Yeah. Uh, that dog has to be under your control by voice or whatever. So I think all of us bear responsibility, and possibly the city as well, but I'm not, I'm not sure what they meant. Yeah, to your question, uh, the city did two things. One they legally changed the ordinance so it's on the books okay that was the first step and that yeah. was really huge yeah. so they had their own legal consultation their own legal department scope out those rules and to van's point their signage clearly uh, releases them of liability as long as uh, they didn't do anything negligent and so by having the ordinance change publishing it announcing it and then having the signage there those two things coupled with a requirement that we have our own liability. Sea Dog has a policy, not necessarily for dog on dog issues, but for officer issues that if you know there was something we did that was negligent or caused harm, we have our own liability policy. I imagine it's come to pass that you've had to ask somebody to leave and maybe not even come back. Has that happened before? Yes, it has. Okay, because they just they won't get with the routine, or the dog just isn't compatible. The, the, it's I mean, uh, sadly, it's the it's the owner that's not uh, trained the dog uh, well enough or properly, and, and possibly in in one case that dog, uh, sadly, it was a pit bull, and I hate to to generalize that, but I believe that <clears throat> my my personal belief, not scientific at all, is that pit bulls, after all, were bred a long time ago to fight other dogs and dogs carry a genetic yeah. uh, streak with them for I mean supposedly you can take a, a Dalmatian and put it next to an old wagon the fire truck and that Dalmatian puppy even today will run right be go between the wheels of the wagon <laughs> um, my, my friend uh, Border Collie Gaia was brought down to Santa Monica to the sheep ranch where they do this He's border collie. He's never been near a sheep in his life. Put him out in the field, immediately started herding the sheep. Yeah, yeah. It's just what they do. And pit bulls, in some cases, used to fight dogs. Yeah. Um, and if they're on, and this one particular pit bull 
usually when there's a problem that you break it up and everything's fine and but this dog we break it up and go right back at the other dog and yeah. we asked this guy to leave until he could do something with his dog and he chose not to come back okay um, well that's that sounds like a, a fairly typical example mm-hmm. of, of what i was imagining you know uh for somebody who wants to get in on it but it's training and it can be the breed and it's the mix with the other dogs more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, you could have a dog not known for being aggressive, but if it's got a problem with any of the dogs, then, you you know, that's an issue right there. Another uh, issue is when the dogs aren't neutered and um, a lot of um, instincts happen when dogs are loose and they get curious about another dog that emits whatever hormones or pheromones or whatever uh, causes that a lot of dogs to congregate around the dog that's not neutered. Yeah. And that dog could feel threatened and vice versa. If the dog's not neutered, they tend to have a little bit more assertive behavior, a little bit more gregarious and maybe more, I don't know, what would you say? Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I, it's, I, I actually see more aggression by the dog's the unneutered dogs mm-hmm. around uh, a, I'm sorry, the, the neutered dogs around unneutered dogs. They, they, I guess it's always like, you know, nip this one in the bud because right. this guy's got, yeah. he's got Maybe they're jealous. Stop this right now. Yeah, yeah. I'm with Van Fleischer and Lorraine McIntyre from Sea Dog, and we're just chatting about uh, having your dog off the leash and how much fun that can be. Uh, were there other locations under consideration for your park, and do you still hope to expand? Um, the only viable location that was put forward and I think has since been abandoned was uh, Lagunitas. Uh, and that was just a wild piece of land that they would develop into a dog park. I mean, there were there were areas mentioned uh, near Dump Road, some of the abandoned oil areas. Um, those were, I guess, two viable ones. Yes, we do hope uh, at some point to have a just a, a dedicated dog area uh, that's fenced. It has water for the dogs. Has shade for some of the uh, for the people uh, who are. We have we have a number of older people who are there in their nineties even, and they show up at the park and sit in a chair, and so they need shade in the summertime. Yeah. And and so that that's always a creates some 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 problems for them. So yeah, we do hope to have have our own. Own area at some point. Yeah, the city had uh, hired a architectural company that specializes in parks and recreation design uh, called Vanada, I think, out of Santa Barbara. And they had identified three or four locations, one being Lagunitas, the other being Monte Vista Park, okay. one being Dump Road, and I think the other one was Memorial Park. I can't remember uh, which one it was. So Vanada uh, drew designs for each of them and uh, we had a chance, an opportunity to kind of review those and provide feedback to the city council. I know many of those meetings, because um, Van was going back and forth between France and the United States, sometimes he missed a couple of the meetings where we would go and talk to the council uh, in a public forum about the designs and our concerns for them being a little bit too small to make sense. And then COVID hit and the city uh, pivoted their attention and resources towards other urgency ordinances. And so they kind of put this on hold right now, but I wouldn't say any of those plans are abandoned. Okay. What about the beach? Uh, There's so much of it. And and, uh, Bates Beach in particular, you have a long stretch that's usually pretty empty. Uh, Now, as far as the shade issue, I mean, uh, you're not going to get that hardly any, any time of the year. But what about, I mean, Henry's Beach seems to work very well up in Santa Barbara, and I see this as kind of a similar situation. Mm. That's a good point. I don't think um, I, if to, to formally make that a dog area, I have not heard anyone actually mention that. Um, and I think part of it, too, it, it is that El Caro is actually, from the centralized location standpoint, um, just works really, really well. I would say that 60, 70% of the people that, that use that facility walk to it. Um, and Bates Beach, they wouldn't be able to, a number of places that would be too far uh, for them to go. So, and then as I mentioned before, the access for maybe for some of the, the older people, for them to right. trudge down the, the hillside could be problematic. And 
again, when you when you watch the dogs, and, and to me, one of the watching them play is fun. But occasionally, there'll be one who becomes the rabbit, uh, who goes out there, and the dogs chase, and you see this big circle of dogs running free, and there's, I mean, if you, people think of that with horses, when you watch a horse run unbridled, just nobody on it, just run. Yeah. And the dogs are the same. Uh, it's just a thing of beauty. It's, it's uh, God, just, you look at that. Well, I love where you're coming from with that. Yeah, so Dennis, you had asked about Bates Beach, and that's a county park, and I know that um, El Caro and all the other um, areas that the city was um, contemplating are within the city limits. Okay. So we could go to the county board of supervisors and petition for county park, and there is one Toro, Toro. What is it called? Toro Canyon. Oh, Toro Canyon. And that's in the county of Santa Barbara. It's not in the city limits, but it there is an off leash area over there, and I believe it is legal. I haven't been there because I've heard there were a lot of issues with the terrain, rattlesnakes, um, gopher holes, foxtails, a lot of um, dangerous situations for dogs. Mm-hmm. But you give a really good idea, Dennis, yeah. and maybe our next visit would be to the County Board <laughs> yeah. of Supervisors. We'll talk to Das Williams. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> not a bad way to go. And uh, yeah, I'm just referring to my own experience living in Santa Barbara five or six years, and, and I lived near Hendry's Beach, and I, I could stand there for a half hour and just watch everybody having fun letting the dog run around, yeah. you know. Uh, and uh, it's such an expansive space. Uh, it seems like they don't run into these issues with with conflicts um, uh, between the dog owners. How did you get the word out at first? Uh, would you just network with other dog owners, say, hey, wouldn't this be fun? Yeah, we, we, I mean, first of all, we had, uh, we had a fairly good-sized group at El Caro, and then had little flyers, and we'd see somebody with a dog, hand them something. And now it's interesting. I see pretty much on there every day. And I would say maybe not every day, but, but certainly every other day, um, we have new people show up. And recently, it's interesting, we're, we're doing a program um, which is Play, Eat, Stay Carpinteria. It's really designed to help the merchants um, get some business, and, and we're, we're talking about dog-friendly carpinteria. Right. And um, so there was a couple the other day with their three dogs, and I hadn't seen them before and said hi to them. And so how did you hear about us? I said, well, you saw a sign with your little flyer with the QR code, which took you to the website yep. and came in and said, great, it's working. Yeah, it's the way of the world now. Yeah. You don't have a QR code, you're lost. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's really good to know. I'm glad that there's continued interest and more and more people showing up. I had an awesome time in the 4th of July parade. Can't thank you guys enough for that. What is next on the Sea Dog calendar? It's probably think uh, Halloween, isn't it? Yeah, so we have our annual Halloween <laughs> costume contest, Very and cool. so uh, we we had about sixty dogs uh, at Halloween twenty twenty one, and we have it at El Caro Park, and we have three or four judges, and uh, they judge them on various categories: scariest, <laughs> most creative, best homemade. Okay. And then we started last year having uh, dog trick contests. So while the judges are putting their heads together to decide who the first, second, and third place winners are with the costume, we're off to another area judging dog tricks. Okay. And so there's two simultaneous. uh, First is the parade around the judges, and then second, the dogs that have tricks go to a different area. So that's a really fun one. And then we always do the holiday parade, which was similar to Independence Day, Although at the holiday parade last year, we were the second largest group. Cool. We had over 60 dogs in that. We made the front page of the newspaper with the banner and the people walking next to it. Um, But as Van uh, mentioned, this um, Eat, Place, uh, Sleep was an initiative that grassroots campaign. We have nine people on our board. We have over 300 members that follow us on our website and get newsletters from us. But we embarked on a mission of approaching all the businesses on Linden and Carp Avenue and asking them three questions. Are dogs allowed inside? Are dogs allowed on your patio? Would you be willing to put a, a, a water bowl outside for the dogs? And once we aggregated all those answers, the ones that allowed dogs inside or outside on the patio made it to the map. 
Oh, great. Okay. That's very useful. mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really incredible. That's great. You're doing all the right things in all the right way. It would appear if there was a brief uh, message you could give to any dog owner out there considering coming down, what would you tell them? Do it. I mean, it's great for the dogs. Socialization is important um, for dogs as well as for people, obviously. And the number of people... Uh, I don't get to talk with the dogs that much and I don't understand their language but certainly the people standpoint is they haven't met more people through coming to El Carroll Park in one or two days than they've met in their years here in Carpinteria and so when you see the dogs and, uh, and I see them all the time day one they're just kind of off to the side a little bit scared halfway well an hour later boom, yeah. they're, they're, they're tumbling and playing and yeah. they can't wait to come back so do your dog a favor, do yourselves a favor, come to El Caro and join in the fun. Okay, and how do people reach you? Let's get the word out. What's the website? What's the phone number? What's the contact information? We can't do a QR code verbally, mm-hmm. so tell people how they can reach you. Um, so you would reach us by uh, website, which is c-dog.org. We also have a Facebook page, Carpentry Dog Owners Group. We have a dedicated phone line, which is 805-668-3366. And then we also have a dedicated email to reach the chief ambassador at El Carro Park, and that's woof at c-dog.org. Okay, fantastic. Freedom is precious, including for doggies. Absolutely. (laughs) Van Fleischer and Lorraine McIntyre of Sea Dog, thank you so much for being on Something to Carp About. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Dennis. really appreciate it. Yeah. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. Cannabis production continues to be a hot topic in Carpinteria, with a few new grows having been approved in recent months and the area about to get its first dispensary. We are fortunate to be in touch with some of the leading experts on the plant and the industry and the ongoing evolution of legalization. Up next, Alex Robles, the host of the In My Grow podcast, and he also programs GreenCoastRadio.com. The best news we've heard in a while on the legal cannabis front here in California has been the elimination of the cultivation tax. What do you think the short and long-term effects of that is going to be? Well, I mean, when you take away taxes on any level, it's always a good thing for the farmer anyways. But it's a good idea because cannabis is taxed at a ridiculous rate. Cannabis gets taxed at every moment from farmer to consumer. As soon as the farmer starts to grow a plant, he has to take down the number of plants that he's taking, that he's growing and they get taxed on that number. When that finished harvest is finally sold to a distributor, it gets taxed then. When the distributor sells it to someone to package it, it gets taxed anyways. Yeah, there, it winds up being taxed at like a 47% level. Yeah. And um, it really makes it hard for the cultivator, for the farmer to be profitable um, because in the end, every farmer wants to be profitable, you know, and taxing any commodity while it's still in the ground, like tomatoes don't get taxed while the farmer's still growing them, you know. No, no other plant does. Uh, n- nothing does. No, yeah. no. So uh, why cannabis is taxed that way is mostly just either a syntax or Everybody just sees weed because through Hollywood that everyone's making money hand over fist. Uh And they think, well, if you're involved in any part of that chain, you must be rolling in it. So we need our cut. Um, Yeah, but it doesn't make sense to tax a farmer. Hopefully what I'm hoping for is since they're not going to tax the farmer, more smaller farms are actually able to stay open and make a profit. But at the same time, th- there's a lot going on in, in the cultivation society also, or, or in cannabis right now in California, because yes, we do want everyone to be successful in that chain. There is still an oversupply in the market right now. I was just going to get to that. Now, if you, if you 
cut the cultivation tax and the farmers make and it's more profitable for the farmers as you were saying then you have farmers wanting to expand to make more money or set up new farms or and even the smaller farms even making more money but we have this bottleneck as far as the supply because of the way prop 64 was written and it it isn't sold everywhere uh, so we're looking at a downside to the to the uh, uh, elimination of the cultivation tax, actually. Uh, yeah, the profit's a great thing, but where is all that weed going to go? As far as how I understand it, I, I believe California is close to a million pounds of cannabis that is that can't be smoked. Wow. The state doesn't have the lungs for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically what it comes down to. We don't have the lungs for it, at least in the, like you said, in the model that's set up now. Right. Where very where like two thirds of the municipalities don't have a dispensary, even a delivery for legal cannabis. So, I mean, I'm a firm believer in the way markets work. You know, the market's going to bear what it's going to bear. If we're overproducing, so maybe we are oversaturated. Maybe there are too many. We're going to see what happens. Yeah. You know, there is, um, and it's not just in California where overproduction is an issue. Yeah. Washington, Oregon, Colorado, they're all overproduced. Um, everybody in the chain of cannabis, whether you're cultivator or manufacturing, it's you're having a hard time moving product. Mm-hmm. I mean, here in California, I'd be surprised if there's 2,000 dispensaries in the state, but yet there are something like 39,000 products that are being that are able to be on the shelves. I mean, if you think about that, that's a lot of product, and that's a lot of different products, okay? But there isn't enough shelf space. Mm-hmm. So again, there's that overproduction. Yeah, yeah. We've already seen kind of a trickle-down effect on prices coming down at dispensaries recently. You know, in this settling down period we've had since legalization, and, and, and it's partly because there is so much supply. So the elimination of the tax in the short term, might that have the effect of like, uh, a, a leveling off effect. Prices pretty much staying where they are for for a little while. Prices seem like they're going to stay where they are for a little while. Um, I don't think we're going to see a big price shift until we get through all of that inventory. Another settling down period. You know, um, yeah. and then you still have to talk about there's still inventory coming in behind that. I don't see this surplus getting any smaller without some really tragic things happening in the market, without some really tragic things happening in the cannabis market. Um, A lot of farms, because of this, a lot of brands will wind up going out of business, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and um, that's, that's just one of the ripple effects of having this tax so long, of having it being taxed at this level for so long. You know, a lot of people who were for legalization of cannabis, but were who were against taxing it in such a way, they've been saying this for years. It's like, you can't sustain this. It isn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a different way to do business for cannabis if you're really trying to make it successful. You know, but again, a lot of policymakers don't know enough about cannabis to see it. To see the forest from the trees, I guess, or get that ten thousand, you know, foot view of it. Yeah. So they're being asked to make decisions about how to run their city or their state on top of how to reintroduce the legalization of cannabis. Yeah. That's gonna actually help people make money. Because in the end, you still get into a, any business to make money. You know. Yeah, you know, it doesn't seem right that this long after legalization, there's still a fight for some people to get the drug. It's kind of what you're referring to, uh, you know, the part that allows communities to opt out of having dispensaries. We are seeing a little bit of progress. Um, there's a proposed change in the law to require every community and or county to have at least one medical dispensary or delivery service for medical patients. What's your take on that? Is that a step in the right direction? It is a step in the right direction because, again, um, when we passed this law, when we all voted for it, we didn't really understand what we were voting on when we said, yeah, just let every municipality opt out. You know, we just assumed everybody would be okay with it. Yeah. And and I say we as the voting public, you know, I, I was part of it. We, you know, this is just one of the unintended consequences we really didn't understand. So that created these cannabis deserts. 
territory. Cannabis is legal for you to own. It's legal for you to buy. You know, it's even legal for you to grow, but there's nowhere legally for you to get it. Yeah. You know, so what happens is whatever money was going to go into a legal industry is now going to the gray market, the legacy market, or the black market, as people like to see. Yeah. And with that, there are no controls. You know, we saw this with the vaping crisis a couple of years ago. The vaping crisis in California happened only in black market products. It was not in state-regulated products. And that was because we have such a huge, wide-open black market here in California, you know, to where it's not only an access issue, but it's also a price point issue, you know, because if a legal product is 43% more expensive in a legal shop than it is on the street... I mean, a lot of people on a fixed income, their choice is very clear. Yes. You know. Well, the advantage being that, that you know, the legal, uh, you're, you're ostensibly paying more for the legal because you know where it came from. You have all the statistics. You can see exactly the THC content and all that thing. But 43%? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's the cost of regulation. Yeah. I'm not saying cannabis shouldn't be regulated. Absolutely. Because it is even though it is, yes, a recreational product, it's still also a drug that people use. And people want consistency and they want to know that it's safe. So regulation is absolutely needed. Do we need 43% price hike for that regulation? No, man, I think uh, we can do a lot better. I think, like I said, lawmakers see cannabis. When they see cannabis, they see dollar signs. But the reality is it's not as rich as you would believe, at least not for the smaller brands or smaller markets. Mm -hmm. You know, we can talk about multi-state operators, MSOs, MedMen, things like that. Yeah, they're rolling in cash. They're running on a multiple mathematics. You know, you put out enough stores, you can capture, you've got a wider net to capture more of that profit, of mm -hmm. course, mm -hmm. you know. And that's what lawmakers look at. But when you bring it down to the micro level of your community, you have to understand that a lot of those businesses opening up are small, small operators who are trying to bootstrap it themselves. Yeah, you not know. necessarily a chain or a corporation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's just somebody trying to actually build on the American dream. All right, let's see if it's true. Can we put forward all our effort and really build generational wealth on our own? Because you know, really that's what a lot of people want also. Yeah. You know, so we're with Alex Robles, host of In My Grow and over at Green Coast Radio. It's something to carp about and we'll be right back. Something to carp about. We're with Alex Robles talking cannabis and we were talking about the uh, the disparity between regulated weed and and how much regulation is necessary and how much that drives up the cost. Uh, along with taxation, and even with the relief from the cultivation tax, they're still going to be looking at a pretty high markup uh, fr from uh, growth to, to the shop. But what I, I wanted to ask you, do we really need the two dispensary system now? Uh, I think it was only ever developed to keep that many more people from getting cannabis at the outset. But now that it's legal for everybody, why should we have two different types of dispensaries? You know, well, first of all, I, I mean, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea to understand that patients have a different need than recreational users. Also, a lot of, quite a few people who come to cannabis as medication, they're also on a fixed income. You're veterans, you know, things like that, people like that, I should say. And so to have a patient system, I think is a good idea. But what I also think is that when towns grab that system or use that system, they should open both types up instead of just allowing one type to open up. Because again, there, there are two different needs in your community right there. Right, but um, we've both seen in practice that seems to work pretty well, dispensaries that are both. Yeah. And medical patients who yeah. have their, their documentation get a lower rate or they get oh, yeah. no tax. That seems to me to be a better model rather than having standalone dispensaries where some people are not allowed in. Yeah, th that's what I mean. I mean, I think you should have, I think one dispensary should be able to play both parts. There you go. You know, I that's really do. I and at. I found that odd in Santa Barbara because, oh man, I, I, well, I'm not going to say the name, but yeah, I, I drove into one of the dispensaries not realizing that it was medical. They're like, oh, you know, and I haven't had my medical card unless I'm going to travel to a state that only has medical. Right. Like 
uh, Hawaii. They mm-hmm. only have medical, so I'd have to get my card so I could access their dispensaries. At any rate, man, man, I'm drifting. I do that on my show all no, the time. No, it's okay. Yeah, not realizing. So I go into one of these dispensaries. Hey, you know, this is only medical. And I was all like, but I'm, I'm not medical. It's like, no, you can't. We can't service you here. We can't help you here. It's like, wow, okay. Well, um, that just seems inconvenient. It seems like a waste, especially, again, if two blocks down. And I don't know if Santa Barbara allows that type of system to where one dispensary can do play both roles. Or if they have to be separated, uh, but I know I'm not a hundred percent sure either. I could swear, but I know that Galita, it's a little. There is I know of one that is both. Okay, uh, in Santa Barbara, I'm really not sure, but they, yeah. you know the rules cross over into the medical have to close on Sunday. It's kind of archaic, but really, yes, in Santa Barbara, the medical dispensaries close on Sundays. Uh, they don't want people high in church. <laughs> I mean, that's the only I thing read I read the text of the law. I didn't, I, I didn't think I could. That just, <laughs> that just seems very Utah <laughs> of them. That's all. I mean, hey. So, you know, well, that brings up a, a funny thing. So if you're one of those dispensaries that service both types of cannabis users, do you turn away medical users on Sundays? Hey, man, today's not your day. <laughs> that's a very good question. I you mean, know, how, how tight you, is you, the rule? You can come in, but you don't get your medical discount on Sundays? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very cough that's a, up the taxes. That's or... very Chick-fil-A of them. <laughs> I'm just saying, man. I mean, that's, Always love having you on, Alex. But, uh, and you know what? I had a blast hanging out with you at Flower Fest. And that was the first time I had ever had the experience of being, uh, being in a consumption lounge. And since then, this uh, smoke easy concept has come to Ojai. It's an approved there. Is it is it going on there now? Uh, so, as how I understand it, they're still they're starting to write the regulations. But what they're going to allow for now, and I believe they said for the first two years, but that could change. I'm not I'm not exactly sure. Um, is that they're going to allow the dispensaries to open up lounges? In their facilities, as right. long as long as it doesn't change the original footprint of their facility, uh, which is going to be kind of hard for a couple of them because I know it's, it's square footage. Yeah, you it's all about yeah. You got, you're going to have to you're going to lose some shelf space. Yeah, and but if it, the word lounge, you're looking at a pretty tiny lounge. You know, in, I, in, in that example. I, yeah, for sure. But I mean, it, it's been done. I know there's a, one up in Lompoc, Urban Marketplace. They have right. a lounge. Right. The most progressive community in Santa Barbara County, as far as cannabis goes. Is that right? Oh, that's right. They were that's first right. and yeah. they still got the most. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, good for them, man. I'm, I just wish it wasn't so far from my house. <laughs> um, but uh, I hope it goes through. I really do. Because I know, I don't know if you spoke on this the last time or if you, you and I just spoke, but you have to give people somewhere to smoke. You know, at the very least, okay, as I've always said, at the very least, I want to take me and my friends off the table. Yes, I would love to smoke in my own town somewhere where I could congregate, have fun, and whatever, play, play bingo with my friends, but let's put that out. You're going to have a cannabis industry in your town. Let's take Ojai. You're going to ask people to come as a tourist. You're going to sell them weed, but not give them any place to consume that. So now tourists are either going to be smoking in their cars, smoking on the street. In the park. Wherever. In the par- Outside, you yeah. know, me and the cops don't want to see that. Yeah, I mean, you know, to a point. But yeah, the cops don't want to see that. They don't want to see people smoking in their cars parked on the side of the road. They don't want to see people in front of their hotels. You know, and then the other thing, okay, let's say a tourist smokes in their room. Possibly they get a cleaning fee of up to $400. Right. I don't want the tourist to have to pay $400 to clean their room. I would rather have them spend that money in my town than have to pay some, pay some kind of silly cleaning fee. So I think most towns are sophisticated enough to where they can get behind an idea of a smoking lounge. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about the towns that have allowed, yeah, uh, that, that have allowed dispensaries, dispensaries in, in or, or, yeah. or delivery. You know, right? Because also, a smoking lounge also provides another benefit to the community in that some people live in government housing. If you're caught smoking in government housing, doing any kind of drugs in government housing, you face the possibility if your manager is real tight on the rules of being evicted. Yep. You know, or if someone in your house was smoking. You know, you could, the whole family can be evicted. So, I mean, if you're going to give, giving them a place where they can feel like, where we can feel like they can celebrate and enjoy and relax and then go home, hey man, that's a great thing. Yeah. You yeah. know? And, and, and sadly, we're seeing zero progress on, on that <clears throat> level, on the Schedule 1 thing. 
And I don't think we're going to until there's a change in administrations. Frankly. Oh, oh yeah. I mean that. You know what? That that to me isn't surprising. Again, you know, we're talking about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Joe Biden, you know, wrote the Crime Act of '82, I think it was, and then you know, Kamala Harris was the top cop in California. Yeah. Th- those guys are, are law and order people, right? You know, everybody has this holdout that the party that they're from is going to do these amazing things. It's all like. Not unless they're pushed. This is one of the best examples of how that's you not know? always true. Yeah, I yeah. mean, not unless it's pushed. And if they're not careful, I mean, an opponent can run on that platform, you know, because we don't understand how knowing everything we know about cannabis now in the modern world, how you're still not going to, at the very least, expunge nonviolent cannabis offenses federally. Yeah. yeah. And at the very least, because... Federal arrest for cannabis has gone up since he took office. I know. And taking convictions aside, if you're just arrested, you forfeit everything. They take it all. No, it's still as bad as it ever was. You know, they take it all. And if you're found innocent, they don't give it back. Mm -hmm. You're just left there with an empty house. If you're lucky, an empty house. Always love hanging out with my buddy Alex Robles, and we'll check back in with him next time for the worldview on cannabis legalization. So to recap and review, the Carpinteria Children's Project is at carpchildren.org, and they always need volunteers. Sea Dog, advocating leashless dog parks and other areas, and you can find them at c-dog.org. And you can catch Alex Robles' Something in my Carp About is heard several times a week at carpinteriavalleyradio.com, and you can download it on all the major podcast directories, including Spotify and Audible. We are sponsored by Pacific Prairie Productions, specializing in podcast production and radio syndication. Call 805-500-3144. Be sure and subscribe at podomatic.com, and we'll talk to you next time here on Something to Carp About.